the church is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. It wasn't their great strategy. It wasn't their great obedience. It, it wasn't any of that. It was the, the Holy Spirit running freely among His people and doing magnificent things. And that's what we are seeing. Uh, just to give us a context, we have a long passage today, and so I'm going to be reading it uh, partially throughout uh, the message, but I want us to remember where we are in the book. So we'll, we'll pick up in uh, chapter 13 with the 13th verse, and it says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on to Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Don't worry about all those, okay? <laughs> if you're trying to figure out, so where, where is that? I don't get it. Don't, don't worry. Uh, and on the Sabbath day, this is the part you want to realize where they are. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, you know what? I'd probably never do that. <laughs> I, I, no offense, because I'm sure that we would be edified if I threw that out there as an option. If anyone's got anything to say, say it. But I suspect that within moments, <clears throat> they regretted saying that too. Because it says in verse 16, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, Listen, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, <clears throat> will you help us as we, as we listen? You've got something important to tell us, so important that you preserved it down through the centuries so that today we could read it and study it. And it's, it's for our ears and for our hearts. And so help us to be attentive in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to get to what, what Paul's message was. Uh, I ran across a transcript of the beginning of one of the presidential debates. I don't know whether you watched the debates when they were taking place. This is, this is what it says. This is Jim Lair. He said, Welcome to the third presidential debate between President Barack Obama and Governor Mitt Romney. The candidates have agreed on these rules. I will ask a question. The candidate will ignore the question and deliver rehearsed remarks 
designed to appeal to undecided women voters. The opponent will then have one minute to respond by trying to frighten senior citizens into voting for him. And when a speaker's time has expired, I will whimper softly while he continues to spew incomprehensible statistics for three more minutes. <laughs> now, okay, that wasn't an actual transcript. Though you might agree that was rather descriptive of what took place in, uh, well, in all the debates, all of them, you know, across the boards. One of the things, though, about the debates, and this is why I mentioned this, one of the things in the debates that was absolutely missing, and it's not always easy to see what's missing because you're, you're studying, you're thinking about what's there, but... In every debate, and this goes, I don't care if it was uh, from the Republican side or, or Democrat or Independent or Libertarian or any of them, one of the things that was missing when they were trying to make big points was history. History. Now, if you, if you said, why you know, why don't you use history? They would say, oh, I, I did use history. I talked about four years ago or eight years ago or in the last 20 years or the last um, three decades or, or something like that. And you see, that's the problem. The problem, not, not just with those who were in the debates, but with most of us is we are guilty of short-term thinking. And when we think history, it's easy for us to, to forget how important it is. Let me, let me give you a contrast to the way we tend to think. Um, and I recognize we're, we're a young country compared to China, but a Chinese historian, and of course their history goes back thousands of years, was asked... Uh, after the American Revolution, what impact he thought the French Revolution uh, had on world history. He hesitated for a moment and said, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> you see, that's thinking long term rather than a few years, a few decades, even a hundred, even two hundred years. What we are going to see, though, is that in the New Testament, in fact, all the way through the Bible, but certainly in the New Testament and in these messages in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not make the mistake of detaching themselves from history. In fact, they made the point of building upon history. Paul is in the synagogue. The law and the prophets are being read. And he's asked to speak. Now, I ask myself the question, if I was given that golden opportunity, how would I begin? What would I, what would I address? And I think I probably would 
would, would have stood up and said something like, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Or, I would begin by talking about, which would be recent history, talking about the cross of Christ and the fact that Jesus is alive and talk about the empty tomb and His finished work on the cross. That's where I think I would have begun. Now they get there, but that's not where He begins. And I think there's a a big lesson in this. Look where Paul begins. He begins by showing that the gospel is rooted in history. Now this is verses 17 through 26. We're going to go through them very quickly, but I'll just kind of give you a capsule of what's being said after each of those. He says, the God of this, here, this is Paul, the God of this people Israel, remember he's talking to Jewish people, chose our fathers and made the people uh, great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. So he starts by talking about God's working through history. And then he says, verse 18, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. He talks about God's patience with the Israelites. And they would have been nodding. They would have agreed with all this. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So he, he reminds them of God's provision and his deliverance. They would have been right on board. Yes, we love this Paul, right? We, we like what he's saying to us. And then verse 20, all this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, God's provision of leaders. And then verse 21, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So he's talking about the giving of Saul as king. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified. And I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now remember that. Remember that phrase there when he talks about uh, David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Because we know, we know what David did. They did too. And in a minute... He's going he's to bring them all the way to how could David be a man after his heart if he's an adulterer and a plotter and a liar and a deceiver and, and involved in murder, okay? He's going he's to bring them up to that. So we have the giving of David. And then, then he gets to the genealogy of Jesus, verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming in the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And then there's a call to listen. Verse 26, brothers. See, he says, here's our history. 
sons of the family of Abraham. See, he's relating to them. And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now, the events that we went through very quickly, you could spend a whole day on each one of these going back, but these are things that to them, unlike us, to them would have burst into memories and thoughts of their own history. To the Jewish person, he went from Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, First and Second Samuel. Those were things that he was talking about. And, and then he talks about the birth of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. And here's what he's doing. Basically, he's saying, look, this is not new. <laughs> this, this that has changed me, he doesn't start with his own being changed. He talks about that in another context. But he didn't start with his testimony. He says, this was God's plan all along. You know about those kinds of things. That's our history. Now to the Jew, that was precious. Because whenever anything took place, whenever there was a turning point, they always went back and they would stand up and they would talk about their history. And they would talk about God's faithfulness all the way through. And here, he ties it in of things that they would be nodding and they would agree, be agreeing and saying, yes, praise the Lord. We extol you, O Lord. And then he talks about Jesus. <laughs> and he says, this is what all of this has been about. All of this history, all of the deliverances, the kings, they weren't the final thing. In fact, look what they were like. They were pointing to the great king. And so he, he draws them in. And I'm convinced that though this isn't a lesson in how to witness, it, it's a good example for us to consider the audience. You know, as you look through uh, the book of Acts you see all kinds of different ways of preaching and, and ways of approaching people. And he begins with that which would ring true to them. And that was their, their history. By the way, it's not insignificant that the form of his sermon is, is very similar to the form of of the sermon of Stephen. Do you remember what happened with Stephen? He preaches a sermon and then they begin to stone him and they put their cloaks at the feet of a guy named Saul who is now Paul. He starts with the history. But he doesn't just leave it in history. And of course... Their history is also in the Scripture. And that's where he then roots the Gospel in the Scripture in verses 27 to 37. So he goes beyond uh, kind of what 
some could see as just a history lesson. And remember, he's talking to a group in a synagogue. They're people who know the Scriptures. So he anchors his message in the Scriptures themselves. But what he does is he takes some passages that, that we would call, looking backwards, we would call them messianic psalms or messianic passages that are pointing to the Messiah. By the way, if you were here last night, you, you heard Messiah, you saw the, the, it was a, a lot of it was Old Testament. Old Testament pointing to Messiah. And so that's, that's what he does here. He takes these, some of these psalms that they probably could have said verbatim because they would have memorized them. And he says, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the Messiah. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also is written in the second psalm. Remember, He's fulfilled it to us. We Jews, that's what He's saying. In the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that's from Psalm 2, verse 7. And here the Father is speaking um, uh, to God the Son, and Paul rightly sees this as being written about Jesus. It's what we call a messianic psalm, verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption... He has spoken in this way. I will give you the, uh, the holy and sure blessings of David. Here's a quote from Isaiah 53. And this text fits into his sermon well, for he's been trying to show that the promises made to David are fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 35, Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For 36, For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom David raised up did not see corruption. Peter used that same text in Acts 2, pointing out, as Paul does, that it was written about the Messiah. That though he died and was buried, he didn't decay. Rather, he was raised again. He walked out of the grave. Now there's one more verse uh, for the Old Testament that he applies. Verse 40. Beware therefore. Now here's the warning. You see, he, he had them early on talking about history. And then they might have said, whoa, now he's talking about Messiah. I don't, I don't know about this. And then he says, beware Therefore, lest what is said to the prophets should come about. And then he quotes, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. <laughs> See, some of them were in their mind already becoming scoffers. And so he applies Scripture that they knew and warns them, Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. He warns them that although they're in an age of grace, God is also the God of great judgment. 
And don't forget that. He could have, like Stephen did, talked more about the judgment of God. But he's been talking about his grace. But he, he says, you got to remember, don't scoff at the work of God. So how then, according to Paul, can we deal with sin? Because now he's getting to the, the gospel, the best news. Let it be known, verse 38, to you therefore. So Paul is saying, okay, here you got your history. Here you got your, your psalms and prophets that are pointing to Jesus. And he's saying, here's the application. Here's what you need to know. And don't scoff at this. Because this is, this is key. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Here in the wake of telling them of how Jesus, uh, the Jews rejected Jesus, Paul springs on them the good news and says, look, if you're, if you're scoffing in your heart, there's even good news for you. If you're like David, there's even good news for you. David somehow went from being the bad king the bad father to being a man after God's own heart. What was between these two is forgiveness. I'm going to tell you something he's saying that is not, it, it's not temporary, it's not lightweight, it's going to wipe out your sin. And it's not something you have to do <clears throat> over and over and over. The good Jew would say, tell us. Okay, I'm in. Give me the good news. Now the Jew's presumption, though, would be that they'd hear what they thought they knew and that is, you need to be more obedient. You need to obey the law of Moses. You need to look at what, what God gave in the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments and obey them, and then you can be forgiven. See, that's what they probably, most of them, were thinking they were about to hear and it's the opposite of what they're going to hear. He says this, verse 39, And by Him, everyone who believes is freed. <laughs> See, that's, they're not used to hearing that. Freed? You mean not plowed under? Not, not put burden upon? What do you mean Freed. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, because here is Paul, a good Jew. He knows what they're thinking. 
He says, look, <clears throat> you've been trying to get right with God by following the law of Moses, and it has not freed you. There's freedom in what I'm telling you, and that was radical for the Jew. Here is Paul, a Jew educated under Gamaliel, who was in their synagogue, and he is telling them that he's offering them something that the law of Moses could never offer to them. In theology, we call that justification. Now let's do some theology. <laughs> We've been doing some theology, but let's do some more theology here. Justification. Some people like to define it by taking the word justified, and they break it up, and they say it means just as if I'd never sinned. And it's a good way to remember it, just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, that's what I am when I'm justified. That's a good thing, but that's only half of it. So remember that part. It's, it's just as if I'd never sinned, but you know, if, if, it, if it's just as if you'd never sinned, you're still, you still don't deserve anything. You're just the way you should have been in the first place, right? So it takes, it takes more in terms of justification. And that's the other part, that the life of Jesus becomes our life in the sight of God. And we then, in God's sight, become as good as Jesus. Did you hear that? In God's sight, we become as good as Jesus. That's what He did on the cross. He took away our sin, and He had a perfect life that for those who believe, He gives it to us. So that's the two sides of justification. And that's the good news. Absolutely good news. Now, sadly, we don't stay as good as Jesus because we sin. I'm not saying we're perfect in this life. But in God's eyes, and when we get to that moment and we stand before Him as to whether we will go to heaven or not, it's all about whose life he sees. And when we're trusting in Christ, he sees the life of Jesus. That's, that's the good news. The law of Moses could never do that for you, is what Paul is saying. And then he talks about belief, again in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Now, what, what's this belief? And I, I already apologized to the inquirer's class this morning because I, said, I, I was talking about the gospel this morning. I said, you're going to hear some of this later. And that that's either means that I need to really practice it because God wanted me to say it twice or you need to hear it twice or something like that. And I don't know, but in, in God's uh, providence, this was all today. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's not just knowing it in your head. Uh, these Jews knew it in their head. They, they knew a lot about God. It's not just temporary, a, a temporal belief. 
This is not a foxhole belief. You, you know the, the old phrase, there's no atheist in the foxhole. What that means is when the, when the bullets are whizzing by, everyone prays. Now when the bullets stop and you get out of the foxhole, not everyone prays because they think they're fine. It's not just that kind of a temporary belief. It, it goes farther than that. Theologian Alistair McGrath um, says, here's the, fo- the following three stages of receiving Christ, what Christ did for us on the cross. And this is well put, so I'm going to read it from him. First, I may believe that God is promising me forgiveness of sins. That's where it starts. That's the intellectual. I may believe. Second, I may trust that promise. But third, unless I respond to that promise, I shall not obtain forgiveness. In other words, you can't just say, yeah, I think that's what you got to do to be a Christian. You've got to respond. The first two stages of faith prepare the way for the third. Without it, they're incomplete. And then he illustrates it, uh, the three stages, talking about a bottle of penicillin. Uh, he says that antibiotic, uh, uh, you know, it saved the lives of countless. Some of you may have been saved by um, taking penicillin at some point for some kind of blood poisoning. He's, he said, think of the three stages of faith like this. I may accept that the bottle exists. You know, you may say, yep, that's penicillin. It exists. I may trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning. I may say, that's really important, and that, that could really help me. But unless I receive the drug it contains, it won't destroy the bacteria. You get it? You've got to have the first two, but the third has got to be there, and we can't stop with just the first two. And that is always as a pastor. That's what I pray every single morning. That people won't, won't be under this ministry that will just have it all up here, but, but it never get here. Trusting in Christ alone. In His work. Not yours for eternal life. Now there's a, in, in the outline, there's a prayer to receive Christ. I'm not Trying to, it's not magical. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I want you to look at that in a moment. And if that's where you are, if, you, if you're at the either temporary or you've got it in your head, but you don't know whether you've ever really trusted, then pray a prayer like this. But let me re- re- remind you if you say, well, I, I still don't. I, now, I want to remind you of his warning from the prophets. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. Don't be in that category. Because you've been told. God has been merciful, but there'll come a time when the offer's no longer there. Do you remember uh, Doug Griffith, who spoke at our missions conference? He was a friend of mine from Atlanta. Um, and, and by the way, he gave me permission to share this, uh, this story, this, this happened to his family. He lives in Peachtree City, uh, Georgia. If you know anything about Peachtree City, it's a golf 
golf cart community, hundreds of miles of cart paths. People go to church and to school in golf carts and all that kind of thing. And he actually, his house backs up to a golf course. And uh, his daughter, when they, when they were little, uh, his daughter Katie had a little honor stand there. You golfers know what I mean, where she'd have refreshments there. And when golfers would come by, if they were thirsty or something, they'd come over and put a dollar or a couple dollars and, and take a, you know, a drink or a candy bar or something like that. And he, he, you know, she earned enough money for piano lessons and that kind of thing. And uh, so that was a, a neat little thing for them. Well, he and his wife were reading in the little local newspaper about a young man who had won a contest he won $100,000, and he won the $100,000 by, I don't know if you remember this contest, getting the Snickers that inside it was a certain color, the wrapper was a certain color, and he turned that in. He won $100,000 right there. He's a resident of Peachtree City, and so naturally they said, well, where'd you, where'd you uh, get the candy bar? You know where this is going, and he said, well, I was playing golf. And I bought it at, at one of the stands along there. Now, Doug and Cindy are going, well, uh-oh, <laughs> you know. You know, they read this. And they start figuring out there's only a, a couple of other stands on the Braylon Golf Course on, on that nine holes. And the others weren't going when school was in session. Hers, they kept going every single day. And so they figured it was probably about a 90% chance that that candy bar had been in their pantry at one point. Now, when this happened, I was still over there at the time, and he, he called me, and he's, you know, he, he's, he's upset. Let's just put it that way, you know? <laughs> and so we're trying to think of applications, and one of the applications, I said, Doug, I think the only thing I know is we just need to eat everything in sight, and then, you know... <laughs> And that's pretty much what he felt like at the time. But here's the thing. I mean, he got over it and had a right attitude about it, and he knew if the Lord wanted them to have the money that he would have, you know, found that and, and so on. So he was fine. Here's the thing. Today, you have within your reach something worth way more than $100,000 of much greater value. But the difference, the difference between my illustration and this is you've been told. Doug and Cindy didn't know. They possessed it. You've been told. Will you? Will you receive that great prize that was won for you? Let's pray together. Lord, it's not about uh, our courage or our intelligence. It's about you giving us the faith to believe. We ask for that. Help us to remove the faith from, if it's just intellectual or just temporary, to build upon that, anchor it in your word, and to believe and trust it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.